This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. As warming ramps up, billions are suffering through extreme heat. Learn who, what, and why through our three scientists. From Hawaii, Camilo Mora, author of 27 Ways a Heat Wave Can Kill You. From Australia, Matt Santamuris on extreme urban hotspots and how to cool cities. And then from Italy, Simone Russo, The Science of Increasing Heat Waves Across the World. I'm Alex Smith, and this is Extreme Heat Number 3. If you have a body and believe more heat waves will come, you need to hear this interview. We're going to explore new science with a title that is starkly clear, 27 Ways a Heat Wave Can Kill You, Deadly Heat in the Era of Climate Change. In April 2017, I interviewed Dr. Camilo Mora. He led a team of 14 scientists from the University of Hawaii, Manoa. They concluded that somewhere between 2033 and 2070, nothing will be the same in a hotter world. That is when the Earth will get a whole new climate. Humans are already dying, as you know, by the thousands, even by the tens of thousands, in deadly heat waves. We don't know when that may become millions of deaths. In fact, until the work just published by Camilo Mora's team, nobody had studied all the ways our bodies react to excess heat. Camilo Mora is from the Department of Geography at the University of Hawaii, Manoa, where he heads the Mora Lab from Honolulu. Dr. Mora, welcome back to Radio EcoShock. Thank you, Alex. A pleasure to be with you again. Is your new paper a logical question arising from your earlier work on the arrival of a new hot climate? Yes, and in fact, we even after we published the paper that you're talking about, we did a second paper looking at heat waves that had killed people in the past. And what we decided was to investigate how many of them had happened, and we found close to 2,000 cases since 1980 when the conditions got to be too hot and people died. Some of these cases, as you point out, killed up to 70,000 people in a couple of weeks, like the one in, in Europe in 2003, the heat wave. It's amazing that killed 70,000 people. There was another heat wave in Russia in 2010, and that killed 15,000 people. There was a heat wave in Pakistan and India in the last two years that killed four to 5,000 people. So, and we found on that one paper about close to 2,000 cases, just like that, of people dying around the world because it got to be too hot. Now, after we published that paper, one of the things that was very intriguing to me was the fact that on all of those papers and all of those cases that we review, it was very vague how people died during those heat waves. So everybody knew people died on those days, but why they died? And the reason why that became important to me is because most people is getting the impression that it's only the poor people, the elderly people, the ones that have no money to buy an air conditioning, the, the people that are dying during these heat waves. So we decided to investigate how is it that people is dying, and we ended up reviewing the medical literature. We reviewed a lot of papers about how medically is that you die, and we found that um, when you put all of those pathways together, there are 27 ways in which you can die during a heat wave, and they can pretty much happen to anybody. So for me, it was just mind-blowing to find that there are so many of them, you know. I just expected to be maybe one or two ways in which you die during these heat waves, but finding out that there were 27 ways, it, it was just mind-blowing to me because that just points out the fact that as a humans, we are very delicate to heat, and unfortunately, the planet is getting hotter. So you get the combination of two terrible things coming our way. 
Well, it is amazing. I mean, we learn a little bit about our basic organs uh, and maybe circulation in school, and then we don't really know how heat is dangerous for us. We don't know how many deaths are caused by smog because the death certificates, they, they never say that. It's often listed as heart failure or something else. Do you think there's a similar lack of statistics and maybe underestimation of the number of heat deaths? Oh, big time, big time. I mean, even on the developed world, there is not a sad diagnosis for when you die from, from a heat wave. Normally, obviously, at the end of the day, when you die from this thing, your heart stops, and most likely the diagnosis is that you had a heart attack. But it turns out that there were all kind of changes happening to your body and damages happening to a body that ultimately make the heart to stop. So obviously, all of that gets uh, clustered within heart attack, and obviously there is a huge underdiagnosis of the number of people dying during these heat waves because there is just no such a thing as a good diagnosis when people die from heat waves. Now, that's one of the things for the developed world. The things are obviously worse for the developing world. What we found on the paper in April about the heat waves that are killing people is that we found that all of these heat waves that are killing people are happening at mid-latitudes, mostly developed countries like the United States, Australia, Japan, Canada, Europe, all developed countries. So for me, that was very intriguing. Is either this heat wave just killing the rich? Now, what we define was that the climatic conditions that have killed people on those countries, those same climatic conditions are also happening on poor countries. So what that suggests to me was that in developing countries, these heat waves are also killing people. It's just that they don't have the resources to, to have the good research to find out how many of them are. So, yes, going back to your question where this is being underestimated, I'm confident that this is being underestimated not only on the developed world, but much bigger in the developing world. Well, let's dig into the very good science in your paper about how our bodies really work when they get overheated. And I'd like to go step by step, Camilo. And the first process we all experience is that blood flows towards the skin trying to cool us off. But what really happens there that is a risk? So the risk that comes from when you get overheated, just like when you go to, for a run, you go to a run and you start overheating, your body starts generating heat, and you need to expel the heat. So the body, what it does there is start making the heart pump harder, and the, it closes blood flow to many organs in a way so that all of the blood now goes to your skin, where it gets cooled down through the process of evaporation of your sweat. So the blood cools down, and then it comes back in into your body cooler. Now, the problem when it's hot outside is that the sweat doesn't evaporate, then the blood comes back in hot. So the body makes an, an extra effort then to send even more blood to your skin as a way, to, as a way to, for it to cool down. By doing so, what it happens is that it deprives many organs of blood, and that's what is called ischemia. Basically, several organs start being deprived of blood, and what it does is that it creates these anoxic conditions on those organs, right? And when you have a, a lack of oxygen on those organs, then that creates all kind of chemical reactions there that are detrimental to that organ. The organ that is the most critical, interestingly enough, I found, was the gut. Obviously, you are hot, you just want to cool down the body. The first organ that it causes the blood supply to are the gut, because you don't need the gut when it's pretty hot. But unfortunately, if the conditions are very long, the gut, the lining of your intestines breaks, and now all of the things that you had inside your guts leak in into your bloodstream. 
And what you ended up having is this massive contamination of your body with everything that was in your gut, in, into your bloodstream. And again, all of that, the result of the fact that there was just no blood getting into your gut. And that's one of the mechanisms that we found um, causes people to die during these heat waves. Basically, your guts just break, and uh, that obviously is a cause for, for death. But I had no idea that was happening. So how did you find that out? Well, it turns out that there are many uh, disciplines that have investigated that quite a lot. Like, for instance, people that do, that do a, a lot of exercises outdoors, like sport people, military people, mining. These are uh, jobs in which a lot of people have died because of excess heat. So the medical doctors have actually investigated that quite a lot on those cases. And that's how... The medical literature is, is very rich on how people die from heat because in certain jobs, the medical doctors have actually investigated that quite a lot. Unfortunately, when it comes to heat waves, we just lack the research to, to study that. But thankfully, we already know that well from other disciplines. And what is heat cytotoxicity? Did you already cover that? No. So another thing that happens, uh, obviously the ischemia is one that can kill you. The other one that can kill you as well is what is called heat cytotoxicity. So when the blood comes back in hot, and obviously your body is generating more heat, the, the temperature of the body gets higher than the optimum temperature, which is roughly 37 degrees Celsius. So if it gets hotter than that, then basically just start cooking yourself. Think about like a sunburn. So many organs start getting damaged, physically damaged, but some other organs can also break. Yeah, but just imagine this like a massive sunburn, and eventually your skin just peels off. So the same thing happens, but now inside your body, and what it does, of course, is that it starts helping the breaking of the membranes that maintain the structure of many of these organs. So the heart, for instance, starts breaking into pieces, and then it doesn't work as good in a moment when you need your heart very bad. So having a sex heat is pretty bad for your heart. It's also terrible for your lungs. Obviously, you start respirating more because you need more oxygen. And with this heat cytotoxicity and you cooking your, your lungs, the, the lungs don't work as well. So many people start also suffering from lack of uh, oxygen getting to, the, the, to their bloodstream. And that is what is called cytotoxicity, basically the time when the temperature is hotter than what the temperature that can be tolerated by yourself. Does the immune system get involved? We didn't find literature on that. We know that there is something called a shock thermal proteins, which is, again, just one response for the body to keep up with, with that heat. But the or reading of that was that those are processes that normally take time to develop. But as for the immune system itself, we, we just didn't come across any specific paper talking about it, but that's not to say that they are not. And then there's blood clots. Really, blood clots are a factor in heating? Oh, big time. So what happens is when you, when you break the lining of your gut, now the human body realizes that you are getting contaminated. So you have something that is called white blood cells, and they start attacking those, those contamination bacteria and food that now you have going through your bloodstream. And the way to kill it is just by creating coagulation around it. Right? And now what you ended up having is a, a potential solution for healing the body, turning into a, a, something that can kill you. So that's one mechanism. The other mechanism is that you have these block-clogging proteins that, interestingly enough, are sensitive to heat. So they become overreactive. So everywhere they are, they, they just create coagulation wherever they are. Now, so that the clogging can kill you, right, because you ended up getting a clog. But the other problem that will happen is the fact that you start running out of the clogging 
protein so that if you have a small cut, you can bleed to death because the body cannot clog it because you, run, you pretty much use all of your resources of those proteins. So those cloggings are actually bad from both ends. They can kill you because they clog the, the blood, and when you run out of them, the lack of proteins that clog can also kill you because you can have a, a, a danger of dying from an hemorrhage just because there is no clogging proteins left. But I assume a process like that doesn't happen quickly. I mean, we're talking about uh, a longer exposure to heat before all those systems could interact and kick in? So that happens. It varies quite a lot, we presume, because there is not really research into this by, by individual. So there are certain individuals, for instance, the elderly, the isolated, people that is exposed to heat constantly, in which their temperature rises pretty fast, and unfortunately their body doesn't have the capacity to cope with it, so basically cooling down. So imagine like a running a marathon. Yeah, so you can go and you can tell a thousand people to run a marathon, and most likely ten of them will finish it. Most of us are just gonna finish up. We are probably never gonna finish it up. So the same thing goes during this heat wave. So the, the you start stressing the body, and not everybody is gonna be able to sustain it. And the same to which these mechanisms start kicking in depends on on how strong really you are at that moment. And of course, many people is gonna get filtered early on, and some of us. Might, might endure it at the end. So the answer to your question is that that depends obviously on, on how good the, the body is at the moment when they get exposed to that heat. But if we go to a sports game, we expect those teams to play even though it's really, really hot. Although we had uh, a couple of tennis players fall over in Australia, I think it was a couple of years ago in, in heat there. Should we be closing games down if it's that hot or, or should we even be exercising ourselves? No, no, no. They do that normally. Obviously, doing exercise is not a bad thing because what happens when you do exercise on a normal day is that the body can sweat and you feel the cooling. In fact, if you are doing massive exercise and, uh, and you stop for a moment, you start feeling that the sweat starts evaporating, right? That's because the humidity is low and that evaporation cools you down. The problem is when you do that, when it's hot, because basically you just, there is no mechanism for the body to cool down. And that's when the thing becomes dangerous. And here in the United States, I have seen multiple times with referees how to stop the game for people to just go and get drink water and cool down a little bit because it becomes potentially dangerous if you continue to be exposed to that extreme heat while doing exercise. Check out the Radio EcoShock website. We're at ecoshock.org. Well, we're just getting started with this heating. We can stay inside with air conditioning, we think, as long as the power is on. But what about the 600 million people in India, for example, who do not have electricity at all? What are their prospects as global warming develops? Well, well, first of all, I don't think the air conditioning is really a solution to this problem, yeah? Because imagine, that, let me just give you an analogy. There is a, I am, I'm a good friend with Mike Tyson, and Mike Tyson every time keeps punching me on the face, Right? So we're good friends, but every time, every time he just keeps punching me on the face. Now, my solution to that problem is to use protective gear on my face so I don't get, when he punches me, I don't feel the pain. Right? So the same analogy goes here with the air conditioning. We had a heat wave that is killing people, and our solution to it is just to buy air conditioning so it doesn't, we don't feel the pain. Personally, I would prefer the solution to, for it to be not to be heat waves at all. Just like in the case of my friend Mike Tyson, I would like him not to punch me at all. Yeah. So this 
idea that we are going to escape these dangers of this heat by buying air conditioning is fair game, but unfortunately, I don't think that's the best solution because at the end of the day, these heat waves are still going to be just as lethal outside. Now, but you point out a very interesting point, though, which is the fact that many millions, if not billions of people around the world just don't have the resources and money to buy an air conditioning, much less to pay for the electricity that it will cost. Now, that's for the developing world. Now, for the developed world, the problem is going to be the electrical grids, because during those heat waves, the electrical wires cannot conduct electricity as good because it's pretty hot. To make matters worse, everybody's turning on their air conditioning. So it has been found in multiple cases in the developed world when these heat waves are happening and everybody turns on their air conditioning that the whole electrical grid collapses. Yeah, and uh, obviously that becomes a potential death sentence for many people because you're in the middle of a heat wave and you cannot turn on your air conditioning. And again, that's another argument that I use to suggest that really what we need to do is to prevent these heat waves from happening in the first place. I'll bet most Americans have forgotten about the Chicago heat wave of 1995. Over 700 people died in five days. They parked refrigerator trucks outside the overflowing morgues to hold them. And one factor in Chicago was fear of crime. Seniors died inside their rooms because they were afraid to leave a window open. So I guess social factors can be important in all this, too. Yes. I mean, that's another another big issue for the good and for the bad. Right now, for instance, in the United States, last this past summer and the summer before, there were over 100 million Americans that were too, told to stay indoors because it was too hot outdoors. Yeah, there were warnings by the federal government that say you need to go indoors because the conditions outdoors are pretty lethal. So that's the reason why we are not dying so much. It's just because right now the government is becoming more preventive and people is becoming more aware of this. But again, that doesn't mean that the conditions outdoors are, are just not as lethal. Well, we also had an Australian medical expert on the show saying that the nighttime temperatures can be critical, as well as the number of days of heat in a row, because somewhere we need time for the body's core temperature to cool down or or we die. Did you encounter that factor in your study? No. we Yes, it is there, but specific information we found only like maybe one or two papers about it. What makes this situation even more dangerous, especially on tropical places, is that is the issue of humidity, right? So during the day, it's pretty hot because the sun is blasting right at, right at you, right? So in places that are humid, obviously that heat evaporates the water. Now at night, when the sun falls down, you, don't, you still lack the heat from the sun, but unfortunately, as it gets colder, the humidity goes up because there is less temperature on the air. The temperature is colder. So what happens at night on many of these tropical places is that it's not necessarily the heat as much as it is the the high humidity what then heats you at night. So you go from being hot all day long because during the day time you, you get the high temperatures of the sun, and at night when there is no high temperatures of the sun, you get the high humidity of the evaporation, and you still cannot cool down. So obviously this becomes like an endurance test that many people cannot endure because you just don't get a relief of it, not during the day, not during the night. We mentioned seniors and people with medical conditions, but uh, as you mentioned in your paper, babies and toddlers are really at risk during a heat wave. Why are their bodies more sensitive? So I, the person, on that paper, we actually make the case that this is something that could happen to anybody. Yeah, so obviously there is a much higher risk 
for this to happen to specific people like the elderly and the young, but that's not to say that healthy people like you or I or any young person is at risk from this. This can happen to even sport people playing outdoors. Now, by answering your question of the children, though, the reason why they are very vulnerable is because of their small bodies. The heat can get to them faster. So they heat up much faster than an adult will do simply because they are small bodies. Think about it. Like when you had a big potato and you want to cook it, you put it on the, on the hot water, that big potato is going to take a long time for it to cook. Now, you put a small potato or you cook that potato in half, the big potato in half, that potato is going to cook much faster because the heat can get to the core much faster. So the issue is the same issue with children and, and with babies. is the fact because their small body, whenever it's hot outdoors, that heat gets to them much faster than it will do to an adult just because of their, their size and volume. Well, I'm sorry to ask this one, but we do need to face up to it. I'm wondering what it might feel like to be dying of heat. Would we even know that we are dying? I mean, we don't know we're at risk. Would we know that it's actually happening to us? No. And in fact, most of the, the there is something called harvesting effect when it comes to heat waves because you may still feel the, the heat and these, many, many of these physiological processes can be triggered, but you might not die right away. You know, you can die, for instance, with a broken liver, with a broken kidneys. You can live with that, and unfortunately, the deaths normally happen past the, the heat wave event, and that's what is called the harvesting effect, in which the mortality associated with these heat waves actually happen a few days, months, and at times years later after the heat wave, just because the, the organs got so damaged, they can still function, and so not, but eventually they, they will get you. So just going back to your question, it's just not safe to be on hot conditions for, for a very long period of time because it will trigger these mechanisms. Again, that's just not to be scared of heat because normally you have the body has a very good defense to cool down from it. The problem is uh, when you get exposed to it for a very long period of time, which happens during a heat wave, that you get exposed for two, three, at times up to two or three weeks of heat during uh, these heat waves. Well, you know, so far the world's only warmed about one degree C over pre-industrial times, and I'm having a hard time finding any scientist on the show who thinks we won't warm at least another degree during this century, and some say we will hit three degrees or more. Camilo Mora, given your study, what does this future look like? Oh, no, this is not going to look pretty. Right now, this is the I mean, that's just remarkable. I mean, it's a wish, I wish everybody in, in the United States and around the world will do a PhD on this to appreciate better the evidence and how bad this is and why, the, why scientists are so scared about this. You know, it's because when you look at the data and you study these cases, you realize how terrible this is. So as you point out, we, we are already heat up the planet by about one degree, and we found 2,000 heat waves since 1980 that had killed people. We found that 30% of the world's human population right now is exposed to deadly heat at least for 20 days a year. Now, what we are talking about is that you fix climate change right now, the best we can, the, the Paris Agreement, even under the best-case scenario, you're still going to allow the planet to warm up by one degree more. So right now, even the most optimistic people in the world, when it comes to the science, had agreed that the planet will still heat up by one more degree. So if you keep in mind that 30% of the world's human population is exposed to deadly heat already. Imagine then what it will be when you allow the planet to warm up by one more degree. Of course, this is not to say that we shouldn't do anything, because if you don't do anything, then the planet will come up by four or five degrees Celsius more, and, and that could be the end of it. Indeed. I think people in industrialized countries remain confident that 
Science and technology will protect them. They don't believe the electricity will go out for a month or two, as it did in Puerto Rico. They think the government will save us or maybe the military. I feel like we're fooling ourselves in a, in a really dangerous way. Yes. So there is a psychological, actually, this has been a story quite a lot. These psychological biases that why is it that we don't take this more seriously? There is one of those biases that is called optimism bias. And basically what it points out is the fact that we normally, everybody thinks that bad things are happening. Obviously, you see them on TV, on the news, and sometimes you might even see them, but you always think that that's just going to happen to somebody else. And that optimism bias is what is preventing people from taking action on climate change because while we appreciate that might be bad, it's something that is going to influence somebody else. When it comes to me, then I will worry about it. Unfortunately, that optimism bias is just a matter of time until it eventually gets to you. And the example that I will give you is exactly what you are talking about, Puerto Rico, or the people in Texas or the people in Florida that were struck, every one of those, by individual uh, hurricanes this past uh, summer season. This is a storm season. I bet... I bet that if you go to you were to Texas a year ago, most of these people will tell you that climate change is just going to happen somewhere else. It was a matter of time until it came knocking at their doors, and now you lost billions of dollars on that estate. Thanks God there were no many lives lost, but uh, the, the damages and costs were massive until eventually came and knocked at your door that climate change is real. So... Again, we live under this, this optimism bias that this is just going to happen to somebody else until it eventually gets to us. And at that moment, unfortunately, that optimism bias, unfortunately, what it's doing is delaying the solutions to fix this problem. And unfortunately, the longer we wait, the worse these things are going to be when they come. So what are the next big questions for you, Camila Mora? What are you going to be working on? So right now, as a scientist, I mean, as you go and look at the science of this, we have thousands of scientists, hundreds of scientific papers pointing out how bad this is. Personally, I think that it got the time for us to investigate how to fix this problem. A lot of scientists are trying to tackle these solutions to this problem at the government level, which is okay, don't get me wrong. But then it's very fragile solutions, just like what you had in the United States here. For many years, we had President Obama, who is a person that say, yeah, we are going to try to fix this. But then out of the blue, we had a person like President Trump that says, I don't believe on this, and he just goes and closes all of the regulations in place to prevent this from happening. So personally, I don't think the solution is going to come from, from the government. I think personally the solutions need to come from the people, people like you or me that start tackling this problem until it becomes a social norm in which every individual of our societies become aware of the footprint that we are having on our planet. And uh, right now that's one of the things that we are working hard on my lab which is how do we ensure that people become aware of this footprint, the individual footprint, and what solutions are there so that every individual can clean up their footprint. Just like when you go to the beach, you produce garbage, but it's not like you're going to leave that garbage on the beach. You normally take it up and pick it up and put it on the garbage bin. So we want to do the same thing for climate change, that every individual, like you and me, we produce CO2, I'm figuring out the mechanisms for you to remove that CO2 from the air, not at the country level, not at the government level, but you as an individual. And that's one of the solutions that we are working on pretty hard on my lab. We've been speaking with Dr. Camilo Mora from the University of Hawaii, Manoa. He is the lead author of a new paper published in the American Heart Association Journal, which is titled Circulation, Cardiovascular Quality and Outcomes. The title is 27 Ways a Heat Wave Can Kill You, deadly heat in the era of climate change. It is an open access paper, 
So you can search for that title or find the link in my show blog at ecoshock.org if you would like to read it. Camilo, thank you so much for providing this important science. We need it. Thank you very much, Alex. A pleasure to be with you. You're listening to Ecoshock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio Ecoshock with your host, Alex Smith. Direct from major published science, lead authors explain a hotter world. This is Radio Ecoshock, the special extreme heat number three. Extreme heat may drive you out. It's pretty close to that right now in Darwin, Australia, where temperatures up to 70 degrees C and astounding 158 degrees Fahrenheit have been measured in certain places in the central business district. It doesn't have to be that way. We can go a long way towards adapting urban heat islands into something much more livable. Our next guest is an expert in that. Professor Matt Santamuris is currently Professor of High-Performance Architecture in the University of New South Wales in Australia, but he's a global guy as a Professor of Energy Physics at the University of Athens and visiting Professor at times at universities in London, Tokyo, Italy, and Singapore. Matt is Editor-in-Chief of the journal Energy and Buildings. He's the author and editor of 14 books on heat islands, solar energy, and energy conservation in buildings. Good stuff. He's published over 180 peer-reviewed papers. Matt Santamuris, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thank you very much for your invitation. Well, this is a good time to be talking about heat where you are. What was the weather like in Australia? Uh, we had a very uh, serious heat wave last, uh, let's say, January and February, where in Western Sydney we had temperatures close to 45 degrees for more than, uh, for more than a week. Well, I interview a lot of scientists about the rise in global mean temperatures, but you're looking at the extremes hitting urban areas right now. Why is it important to look at very local temperatures as well? Because, uh, you know, local temperature affect uh, the quality of life, you know, of people. Once you have very high temperatures, you have a tremendous impact on energy, you have a tremendous impact on morbidity and mortality, on comfort and health on peak electricity demand, on cooling demand, on everything. So peak demand and peak temperature really define the quality of life. Average temperature, it doesn't really show something because you may have a low temperature during the night, you may have a very high temperature during the day. So what? You know, uh, it's very important to understand really how is the temperature during the daytime and how is the temperature during the nighttime and which are the characteristics of the variation of the temperature during the day. Now, the city of Darwin is on the north coast of Australia. It's expected to be hot. It is tropical. But have there been some recent studies done about what is happening in their downtown area, or as they would call it, the central business district? Yes. Uh, we have monitored the whole area. And uh, we have, uh, let's say, collected a lot of data about the ambient temperature and the surface temperature in the CBD area of Darwin. And uh, we have then uh, developed some uh, monitoring, uh, some um, some uh, mitigation technologies and mitigation scenarios in order to decrease the temperature. And actually, uh, we try to implement all these new technologies uh, downtown Darwin. The surface temperature, as you as you, you mentioned before, was very high because of the use of non-appropriate materials, for example, 
bitumen and parking loads and many other things that presented, uh, let's say, surface temperatures up to 70 degrees uh, Celsius, while the ambient temperature was about, let's say, 3 to 4 degrees higher than in the surrounding area. So the intensity of the urban heat island in, uh, in Darwin was about 3 to 4 degrees, and this had a tremendous impact on energy, on mortality, on morbidity, on comfort, on everything. Yes, people die earlier because of extreme heat. We've been doing a series on that on Radio EcoShock. Now, in April 2017, you co-authored a paper titled Mortality Associated with High Ambient Temperatures, Heat Waves, and the Urban Heat Island in Athens, Greece. Please tell us what you found there. Uh, it is well known that, uh, you know, mortality, heat-related mortality, is very much associated with, um, let's say, the peak temperature. And in many places in the world, uh, we have found that, uh, that it follows a U-shaped curve uh, and the higher the temperature, the higher, let's say, the mortality. There is a threshold temperature over which mortality is increasing almost exponentially. And this threshold temperature is not the same for every place. For example, for Athens, it is close to 32.5 degrees because people there is adapted to high temperatures. But in London, it's close to 23 degrees. So in every place, there is a threshold temperature over which heat-related mortality is increasing really exponentially or very highly. So uh, what we found in Athens was that uh, once the temperature exceeds, let's say, the threshold, 32 degrees, uh, mortality is increasing really very rapidly. And, um, and this, is, this is a major problem because it affects uh, the vulnerable population, it affects the aged people, it affects, uh, let's say, children, it affects those that they are living in non-proper houses, low-income people. And this is, let's say, a social penalty imposed, you know, to those that they cannot really afford to have air conditioning in the whole day at home. Well, it's partly cultural then and whether people are already adapted or expecting heat, but there's also the factor of the humidity in the weather. Isn't that important as far as mortality goes? It is, it is, it is. It is very important. Humidity is very important. It plays a very important role. Humidity in Athens is not so high. So humidity is not the major problem in Athens. But in other places, for example, in Darwin, humidity is a major problem. So the combination of humidity with, uh, let's say, the ambient temperature can be, let's say, very, very important and may define the levels of uh, heat-related mortality. But uh, let's say all the studies that we have from all the, let's say, the last uh, heat waves around the world has also shown that uh, outdoor pollution and indoor pollution, but mainly outdoor pollution, in combination with high temperature and humidity, may, let's say, create a a very fat cocktail, you know, for the human beings. On November 27th at News.com in Australia, they published some very revealing heat photos. I liked them. There was a rooftop parking lot that was off the charts hot, while a nearby lot with a large tree was a lot cooler. How can planting help cool off our cities, Matt? Greenery makes it a lot, because greenery, you know, offers evapotranspiration and decreases temperature in, in our cities. And at the same time, you know, because of shading and many other functions of greenery, uh, uh, they may help a lot to decrease temperatures and mitigate uh, urban heat island and improve conflict conditions. Greenery is one of the best mitigation technologies we may apply. Also, we have to understand that greenery is very effective after a certain temperature above the threshold Greenery is not producing any more evapotranspiration because it has to be protected. It has to protect the water, you know, of, uh, of the tree. 
And in this case, you know, Greener is not really responding to, uh, to the mitigation. So Greener is a very effective and very, let's say, important uh, mitigation technologies that may help at a certain, let's say, temperature. Above this temperature, Greener cannot help a lot. And this is the reason that uh, in many parks during heat waves, temperature is higher than outside the parks. And there's been a lot of talk of painting roofs white to reflect more of the sun's energy. You published an article in September 2017 on reflective geoengineering technologies in cities. Matt Santamuris, please tell us about that. Yeah, uh, we have developed some reflective technologies for pavements and roofs. Reflective technologies uh, that really help us to decrease the surface temperature of the pavements and decrease the ambient temperature. Uh, we have more than 200, uh, let's say, applications all around the world, and we have seen that uh, the use of uh, reflective pavements uh, of high technology may use, let's say, the surface temperature up to 15 degrees, and at the same time decrease the ambient temperature up to 2 to 0.5 degrees. This is very important because it may decrease the cooling load of buildings up to 60-70%, decrease the heat-related mortality by about 60-70% as well, and also decrease the peak electricity demand by 5-6% in the city, and also improve the comfort levels. This is a very mature technology. Actually, we're working with the development of more efficient, let's say, pavement technologies using some very advanced materials, and we hope that in the next five years we will be able to decrease the ambient temperature up to 4 or 5 degrees. Wait a minute. If we just change the way we build things and the way we pave things, we could reduce mortality by about 60% and save about 60% on the energy use of buildings? Energy use for cooling and the heat-related mortality, not mortality in general. <laughs> right. Well, that's still an amazing amount. We should We should get going on that. Of course, of course. So the, the recent study we have performed for Western Sydney, it shows that um, in the northwestern part of the city, where temperature is about 9 degrees higher than in the eastern part of the city, uh, the application of advanced mitigation technologies may reduce the peak temperature up to 2.5 degrees, but at the same time decrease, let's say, the heat-related mortality by about 90%. Uh, just to understand that um, in the eastern part of the city, uh, heat-related mortality is close to seven, let's say, deaths per 100,000 inhabitants. In the western part of the city, maybe close to 14. Application of, uh, let's say, uh, mitigation, advanced mitigation technologies may reduce heat-related mortality down to seven, which is, let's say, a decrease close to 90%. So it is, it is really very important. And in my, in my opinion, you know, the main problem and the main issue we will face in the future is really health and not so much energy. Energy is important, but we know how really to face energy problems. Health is going to be the major issue in the next years. Well, of course, the real solution is, as you say, to slash our greenhouse gas emissions. And I see you're involved in a project called Zero Plus. The longer title sounds really exciting. Achieving near zero and positive energy settlements in Europe using advanced energy technology. How do you envision these Zero Plus settlements in Europe? Yeah, this is a very prestigious project. This is the flagship of the European Union. And I'm very happy to be the coordinator of this project. This project aims to design and also, let's say, build four zero energy settlements, one in Cyprus, one in Italy, one in France, and one in the UK. Actually, we have, let's say, finalized the design, and two out of the four 
settlements are under construction, and we expect that, uh, let's say, by the beginning of the next year, the construction will start in the other, let's say, sites. And by, let's say, 2019, all the settlements will be ready. This is a major, let's say, issue because uh, actually we know a, lo- a lot about, let's say, zero energy buildings, and we have optimized zero energy buildings. But we have found that zero energy buildings increase a bit of the cost, you know, of the residential or the office buildings in general. So uh, the best way really to integrate renewables and energy conservation technologies in the building sector is to have, let's say, a community-integrated renewable and energy efficiency technologies than building-integrated technologies. Once the technology, the renewable technologies and the energy efficiency technologies are integrated into the community level, the cost is much lower, the management is much better, and the performance is also, let's say, much better. So this is a win-win situation. This is what we have designed, and this is what we implement, actually, in the four, let's say, settlements. And we expect to have all the monitoring results, the first monitoring results by the the end of the next year. Matt, could you tell us where one of these zero settlements are so we can look them up on the Internet? Yeah, there's a site, uh, Zero Energy, uh, Zero Plus program. You may, uh, let's say, Google Zero Plus, and you will find the site. And uh, all information is there. It makes me wonder why we don't mandate net zero buildings for new construction, say, in Australia, in the United States, in Canada, where we need them. Uh, in Europe, it is mandatory. Since 2018, all the public buildings, since 2020, all new private buildings have to be zero energy or uh, almost zero energy buildings. So it is mandatory in, in Europe. In Australia, I think that um, the quality, actually the quality of the building, uh, let's say construction, is not the best possible, and a lot of things have to happen. Perhaps of the climate, perhaps for many other reasons, uh, let's say uh, energy protection and uh, the energy consumption of buildings has not taken really the proper attention. I think that there is a huge potential for improvement, and this is something that has to happen here. Uh, in Canada, I think that uh, actually the, 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 the level of knowledge about um, uh, zero energy business is very high. I know that there is a wonderful work that is happening actually in the University of Concordia in, in Montreal. I know that there are many, many zero-energy buildings. I think that this is not a technical problem. Um, the knowledge is there. It is more, let's say, a commercial problem. It is let's more a policy problem if, uh, let's say, the governments they like really to invest in it and push, let's say, the country towards such a direction. Radio Ecoshock. This is Radio Ecoshock. I'm Alex Smith. I'm talking with Professor Matt Santamuris from the University of New South Wales in Sydney. And extreme city heat is getting pretty important. It's uncomfortable for people in those urban heat sinks. It can be deadly. I'm wondering, Matt, can we just keep air conditioning everything so we arrive by an air-conditioned car, we get out into air-conditioned buildings? We're making these technical cool bubbles to stay alive as long as the power stays on, but there must be limits to how much we can do. There are some limits, for sure. Uh, Depends, you know, on the magnitude of the problem. Uh, Once, you know, the ambient temperature is, uh, let's say, very close to the temperature of the human body, yes, we have many alternatives, and we may, let's say, avoid the use of air conditioning, and we may apply some passive cooling techniques, and we may reduce uh, substantially the use of uh, air conditioning. Uh, once uh, the ambient temperature indoor or outdoor is close to the uh, the body temperature, 
We may apply several passive cooling techniques and uh, we may, let's say, avoid the use of air conditioning. Actually, we have designed buildings with almost a zero energy consumption for cooling or very, very low energy consumption for cooling. So, uh, yes, it is possible. But on the other hand, once temperature exceeds a certain threshold, for example, during heat waves, you may have 45 degrees, 46 degrees, adaptation is very difficult. And uh, although the quality of the building may reduce the cooling needs, let's say up to 60, 70, 80%, depends on the quality of the building, human beings cannot really afford to live under these conditions for long periods. So air conditioning is absolutely necessary. In this case, we need some technical adaptation measures to protect the population and especially the vulnerable population. We don't have alternatives, you know, for such a range of temperatures. We can really avoid the use of air conditioning up to 35, 34, 35 degrees, and it's not so simple, but we can do that. But once the temperature is much higher than the temperature of the human body, then we don't have enough of alternatives really to protect human beings. Are cities starting to apply these adaptation techniques? Where are we now in this process? Depends on the city. In Europe, actually, there is some adaptation measures and uh, some emergency measures trying really to to offer the proper, let's say, adaptation policies to people that cannot really afford to have an air condition at home or their vulnerable population, etc. So they open some, let's say, sport facilities, air conditioning sport facilities, they offer air conditioning, transport, uh, many, many things. And this really may save lives. But the more important is not there. The most important, in my opinion, is really to have a, a global policy to improve the quality of the built environment. It is extremely important to, to improve the quality of our cities, improve the quality of our, let's say, buildings. So it is very, very significant, you know, first of all, to avoid the overheating of our cities and to use the proper materials, use greenery, use water, use some sophisticated mitigation technologies. We are able to decrease the peak temperature of our cities up to 3 degrees. In the next years, we'll be able to decrease temperature up to 4 or 5 degrees. These technologies have to be implemented. We have already many, many examples, more than 200 implementations all around the world, very successful. At the same time, we have all the technology, all the knowledge to improve the quality of our buildings, decrease the energy consumption, provide comfort, have a better air quality. So this is, in my opinion, one of the highest priority. And it's not just a priority that uh, will, let's say, improve the quality of living, which is of life, which is very important. But on the other hand, we'll create huge opportunities for employment, huge opportunities, you know, for further development, will be a new, let's say, financial opportunity for, for the whole world. So retrofitting of our cities, retrofitting of our buildings, in my opinion, is one of the major, let's say, opportunities and is a, a win-win, let's say, situation. We have been talking with Professor Mateos Santamuris. He teaches at several universities, including Athens right now. He's with the University of New South Wales in Sydney, Australia. And I'll put links to some of Matt's papers in his bio and the new science we've talked about in my show blog at ecoshock.org. Matt, thank you so much for sharing your work with us. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. I'm Alex Smith for Radio Ecoshock. A best of Radio Ecoshock replay. New science shows killer heat waves will sweep the world as the globe warms. 
Are you ready for 55 degrees C or 131 degrees Fahrenheit? Nobody is. Our guest is Simone Russo, a geophysicist working at the Joint Research Center of the European Commission, located in Ispra, Varese, Italy. Simone, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Uh, thank you. You are the lead author in a new paper published in the journal Nature. The title is Humid Heat Waves at Different Warming Levels. You arrived at startling results, but first, Simone, what inspired your team of scientists to look into this question? We wanted to compare heat wave magnitude across different regions with different climates. So before this study, we have developed heat wave indicators by using only temperature. However, with the previous indicators based only on temperature measures, uh, we have seen that in some regions of the world, these uh, indices were not able to capture important historical heat waves, such as the one in uh, Chicago in 1995. Then we have understood that the problem in some region was the humidity. And then we decided to have a new indicator or to correct the previous indicator on heat wave magnitude by using both temperature and relative humidity. Yes, as you say, most people realize a dry heat is easier to take than heat and humidity, but why is that true for the human body? The combined effect of temperature and humidity is measured in our study by using heat index that according with the U.S. National Weather Service is based on what is also called apparent temperature. When this temperature is above 55 degrees, this kind of temperature is very dangerous, even for healthy people. And when do you think these incredible apparent temperatures could happen? It could happen starting from 2050, But as an extreme event, it could happen even in the coming decades. But, uh, of course, it's a more rare event. But if the global mean temperature will increase, then, of course, the probability of occurrence of this apparent temperature will be more likely. So where are the regions where high heat and humidity are most likely to appear together? Yeah, according with our our results and also with other recent studies, there are high heat combined with high humidity are most uh, likely to to appear in uh, the southern eastern U.S., in the eastern China, India, and Malaysia. However, we have uh, investigated in at global region, and we have seen that there are regions like the eastern U.S., like, for example, all the Middle East in the U.S., like Chicago, where you have hot day, but not very hot, finally, like a temperature of 38 degrees that are combined with the humidity that reaches in summer 80%. Whereas in India, you don't have very high humidity. You have in summer humidity around 40, 50%, but this kind of humidity is enough to amplify the very extreme temperature that reaches like 45, 46 degrees regularly. 
I've also seen that there can be similar problems even in the Middle East in Dubai or along the Gulf Coast because occasionally they get very high humidity there. And of course, they get record high heat that we've seen. You know, there are some heat waves that marry humidity to create mass fatalities and others do not. Simone, what were the conditions in Europe in 2003 when up to 70,000 people died? Yeah, this is a famous uh, heat wave, in, in particular in Europe. Uh, we have uh, in some way shown that the heat wave in Europe are dry heat waves. So in, in summer, we don't have a combination of uh, hot and high humidity. The summer heat wave of 2003 was a dry heat wave. The impact of this heat wave was uh, very high for the persistence of uh, hot consecutive day. So the level of humidity was uh, low, but many people die because what we call in climatology dry bulb temperature, so the, the, the temperature that we measure with a normal thermometer, reached a, a value that was around 46 degrees in city like Cordoba in southern Spain. Could you tell us about the heat wave in China in 2003? What happened there? Yeah, we, we have described this uh, heat wave in Shanghai in particular in 2003, and uh, it was the hottest summer in uh, over 50 years. The hottest day of the heat wave occurred in July 25, and the maximum temperature was 39 degrees. But the combination of temperature and humidity has amplified the apparent temperature level that was recorded equal to 48 degrees. And uh, the level of mortality was very high during this heat wave. And in this region, this kind of heat wave are very likely. In fact, after 10 years in 2013, there was another heat wave, humid heat wave, in the same regions that is documented in many studies. You are tuned to Radio Ecoshock. I'm Alex Smith with my guest Simone Russo, assigned us with the European Joint Commission in Italy. Simone, suppose governments in the Paris Accord actually meet their goals and we miraculously only warm up 2 degrees global mean temperature. What does your paper predict could happen? What we did in our paper, since we are using this magnitude indicator for heat wave that can compare the magnitude of heat wave across different regions, we have used as reference one of the most important heat wave occurred in the past, the Russian heat wave of the 2010. And we have seen that two degree warming, so under the, the Paris Agreement, we can have such kind of heat wave due to the effect of humidity in some region of the world, like the eastern U.S., the eastern China, and India. And the probability of occurrence of this heat wave, of course, is not very high if we respect the Paris Agreement. We have estimated the probability in this region around 10-20%. It means that it's once every 20 years. This kind of heat wave are unlikely to occur in all the other regions where the humidity doesn't play an important role under two degree warming. 
But I have to say, almost every scientist I've interviewed thinks we will go well beyond 2 degrees C warming, if not in this century, more certainly in the next. Simone Russo, what happens if we force the climate into a warming of, say, 4 degrees C? Yeah, I would say from heat wave point of view is a disaster because uh, it seems in particular that in this region where humidity uh, is important during some, uh, where in the region where the, the, the level of humidity is very high during hot temperature, we can have uh, a Russian heat wave uh, for the effect of temperature and humidity occurring every two years. And the peak of this heat wave, uh, so the maximum heat index measured during this heat wave, could be every two years greater than 55 degrees due to the combination of high humidity and temperature. So if we will not respect the Paris Agreement, the level of mortality due to humid heat wave in a specific region could strongly increase if we don't take some medication or something to protect people, at least during summer. Well, if we have heat waves over 55 degrees C every two years, that's going to be a terrible world to leave to our grandchildren or or to our children. But looking forward, it sounds possible then that by the end of the century, possible that just going outside could be dangerous during summer in some parts of the world, but there's always going to be a need for outside workers How can we plan or cope with the coming heat? Of course, uh, going outside could be very dangerous. What we can do, it's very, very difficult. In my opinion, the best would be to respect the environment and to reduce the greenhouse gases emission and to respect the Paris Agreement. But if we will have this kind of temperature peak, the best is not to go out and maybe to have some some way to protect uh, from the extreme heat and in particularly having some air conditioning. But this will be in contrast with the reducing of the CO2 emission. So it's difficult to say what to do if we will get four degrees. <laughs> I think the best, uh, we have the last chance now and we should try to not to, to go over to degree warming. Well, frankly, your new research is frightening for us and yet not completely unexpected for those who follow developing climate change. And even the, the most optimistic models predict a very bad scenario talking about heat waves. Simone, thank you so much for sharing your time with us. Thank you, Alex. It was very interesting to talk to you. Get more information on all our guests in my show blog at ecoshock.org. Thank you for listening and caring about our world. Mm-hmm.